When you're part of a pair, it's hard to tell where the we ends and the me begins. To wonder if being one half of two adds up to less or more than that of a whole. To have a twin, some might describe as a yin to their yang, or quite literally, a reflection of oneself with free nature, as if you're trying to experience a life at multiple times, but all at once. In most families with twins, if you look at old photo albums, it's usually pretty difficult to find a photo of only one of the twins, but almost always the photo is taken of both together. Sometimes aggravating and other times just a plain prankster of fun. Identical twins are hard to distinguish who is who, or if they are one, but obviously there's two. But twins can sometimes have uncanny ties one to another, feeling each other's happiness, pain, and even death. Join us tonight as we stare into that reflection and try to understand the uncommon bond of twins. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Identical twins. It's an occurrence where an egg with the same DNA is separated. This occurs in three out of every 1,000 births, approximately. Considered a genetic phenomenon, a fluke of nature, sharing your genetic blueprint DNA with another is a bit complicated on so many levels. It seems a bit rude and yet freaky for twins to be pointed at and questioned as if they are often misunderstood. When you ask an identical twin, the first thing that comes to mind is, what's it like to be a twin? <laughs> they may look at you and smile, however, inside, probably thinking to themselves, how can I answer that? It would be like me asking someone with two legs, what's it like walking with one leg? How would I know? This is all I've ever known. Now, no affiliation or endorsement on behalf of Netflix, but I, <laughs> I must say, if you want a great thrill ride with plenty of twists and turns about twins, I do suggest a new series called Echoes on Netflix. This brings you into the life journey of a pair of girls, twins, and some of the things that they did as twins that absolutely will boggle your mind, which takes several unexpected paths. And we're not going to get into that, but I highly, highly suggest Echoes on Netflix. I'm going to talk a little bit about twin telepathy. There are certain unexplained phenomenons that occur between twins that even modern science can't explain. Case number one. A Kaylee and Allie, seven-year-old twins from Pennsylvania. They were born just seconds apart and are nearly inseparable, like many twins seem to be. When they were only five, something truly bizarre occurred in their lives. The girls were playing outside in a swing set playground area. When five-year-old Kaylee was on a trampoline and got struck in the face, resulting in a black eye. Now, her identical twin, Allie, was in a different area, same playground, but within seconds, she also began showing signs of a bruised eye. Now, 
I'm I'm just gonna say this. That that story is a little familiar to me, and I I will give imaginary internet points to whoever can remember, but tell me where Zaymont and Tomax are from. A pair of <laughs> twins who experience each other's pain. Surely you know that one. I. I'm drawing a blank, but I know the story, but I, I'm, I'm struggling. All right, well, I'll award you internet points if you've already guessed. It was from G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Now, her identical twin, like I said, Allie, had been on a totally different area of the playground, but within seconds developed the same signs of a bruising around the same eye, although she herself had not been hidden, like that of her twin sister playing on the trampoline. Now, the mother, who did not wish to be identified, rushed both of the girls to the hospital, obviously, to be checked out. And both were documented. Sure enough, the girls have black eyes. Such cases are examples of what is being called twin telepathy. Far-fetched? Well, maybe. Not as much as you might think. All identical twins essentially started as one embryo, or one life, if you will, that for whatever reason was divided into two parts. Some speculate that identical twins maybe, just maybe, share a single soul, and that <laughs> is intertwined, even though the embryo separated. I went to school with a set of identical twins uh, when I was in high school. Lovely young ladies at the time. But I think they, they were of that mindset that they, would, they tried to create differences between Not each be other. twins, yeah. You know, so they weren't identical. So you could tell the difference between the two of them. One kept her hair cut much shorter than the other. They, I mean, they never dress the same. Because that's like, you know, as someone seen identical twins, that you're waiting for that, basically. They, they never did. The doppelganger version. I actually uh, knew two sets of twins uh, when I went to school. One of them I knew a lot better because literally we went through elementary through most of high school together. We worked with a set of twins, actually, you and I, um, at one point in time. Yes. Um, and, and I've worked with both of them and their father, actually. Well, we can have identical twins, but you can also have non-identical twins. Like you said, identical twins is they, you know, one one fertilization splits and creates two lives. Uh, Non-identical twins is just two different eggs being fertilized by two different sperm. They're not identical, but they're born the same time. They share a womb. My grandfather was actually one of a pair of twins, non-identical. He had a twin sister. Oh, my mom always told me that we would have twins because twins are supposed to skip a generation. I and, heard that in my family. And so my grandfather, the next generation, his kids, none of them were twins. And so, and then none of the next generation. So my mom was like, it keeps skipping generations. And I was like, well, if I have twins, I'm, yeah, I wasn't <laughs> ready for that. My wife certainly didn't want that. And again, you've, you've talked about these different psychic connections and all that. I have these anecdotes, that, these stories that I found that were, were sort of strange stories about identical twins. All mine ended up being about identical twins, actually, but. The first one I wanted to start with, the one that I, I thought was fair, I, I find it to be a very interesting story. Um, did, you, did you hear the story of James Arthur Springer and James Edward Lewis in your research? Don't believe so. There's a lot of stories out there, yeah. though, I will say. So these, these two gentlemen were identical twins, and they were reunited in 1979 after spending all but the first four weeks of their lives, their whole 39 years, separated. Almost 40 years, 39 years. Wow. They were born premature on August 19th, 1939 in Piqua, Ohio. And their mother, who was an unwed immigrant and could not afford to take care of them, put them both up for adoption. Now, they grew up living just 40 miles apart from each other. But their lives and the commonalities, I mean, you can talk about coincidence all you want, but just wait till I give you this list and tell me that, you know, there's not something more here. A little bit more there. Each married and divorced a woman named Linda. Mm -hmm. Second wives were both named Betty. Mm -hmm. They both had sons named James Allen. 
Wow. Now, Springer's son, the Allen, had two L's. Uh, Lewis's son, Allen, had one. Uh, each man had grown up with an adopted brother named Larry. That's weird. They'd each had a dog named Toy during their childhood. <laughs> they both had law enforcement training. Both worked part-time as deputy sheriffs in towns 70 miles apart. They shared many common interests, including mechanical drawing, block lettering, and carpentry. They both said their favorite subject in school was math, and their least favorite was spelling. They both vacationed at the same beach near St. Petersburg, Florida, and both drove Chevys. Wow. Their smoking and drinking patterns were nearly identical. They tended to use the same slang in their speaking. Uh, Now, this could be attributed to all their other commonalities. I mean, similar jobs, similar interests. Of course, you're going to- Same region. Yeah, same region. You're going to develop a similar lexicon. Now, what, what I found most more fascinating than all of that, both had similar headaches called mixed headache syndrome. And these are types of headaches that were believed to be entirely stress-induced, that it could not be an inherited trait. You don't, these, weren't, these were stress-triggered headaches. Uh, however, both Lewis and Springer suffered from them. They'd begun experiencing them at the age of 18, and they would get them with the same frequency and severity. So this convinced doctors that something they'd always believed was stress-induced could actually have a genetic component. These two identical twins suffered from a disorder that they believed was entirely influenced by outside forces. Perfect little science experiment there yeah. without knowing it. Now, again, one could argue similar lifestyles, but, but all that, no. They, uh, so they started to, to research this and, and found you know that, that maybe the way we process and we deal with stress could be genetic. Maybe we get that from our, our parents and our ancestors. They also, and I found this interesting, each experienced an unexpected weight gain of about 10 pounds in their adult life, and it happened to both of them at the same time. (laughs) And so this led researchers to begin to investigate the genetic impact on seemingly unrelated life changes. Maybe if you gain weight, there's a a genetic component to that. Maybe if you, you know, hair loss or this, that, or the other. I mean, there's, there's a million different things. Right, right. Because these guys were identical twins raised entirely separate, so it couldn't be environmental factors. So they weren't raised with the same family background. That wasn't the same outside stresses. Right. So, you know, it, it, it led the researchers to start investigating the similarities in these two when they thought that some of these similarities would be virtually impossible. It actually really kind of furthered our current understanding of twins and genetics and, and, and the influence that genetics can have on a person. Well, that definitely sounds more than coincidental. Yeah, by you, far. At a certain point. At like three or four items in, yeah. <laughs> much less 12 or 15. Yeah, at a certain point, it's not just coincidence anymore. It's just, it's, and, and again, you know, the same, adopt, you know, growing up with an adopted brother with the same name. Well, I mean. The same ex-wife, the same second wife's yeah. name, naming their boys the same, including middle names, slight different spelling. Yeah, yeah. How, how are those things genetic? That's crazy. <laughs> Well, in my case number two, we're going to talk about, unfortunately, losing a twin. Another example is about uh, two hours from London in the English countryside called Luderworth. Here's another set of identical twins, an Andrew and Christopher Watson. Now, they started expressing an uncanny connection right after birth. Now, when the boys were first born, Christopher was a little bit smaller, and I'll, I'll say unhealthier of the two. That, um, that happens oftentimes with twins. One... One kind of becomes dominant, it, and I think it's kind of more beats up the other one in the womb. Well, I, <laughs> I think it's more common with non-identical twins than it is identical twins. But it's just that, yeah, like one of them sort of monopolizes the resources, if you will. Well, in fact, the one that was a little bit weaker had some serious health issues uh, that kept 
for a small period of time after birth, kept him separately in an ICU ward of the hospital away from his larger identical twin brother, Andrew. Now, the boy's mother explained Andrew, again, infant stage, we're we're talking a week, two weeks after being born, would wake up from a deep slumber and just cry for no apparent reason. And it took them a few days to kind of put together some pieces of what they felt they had discovered. It was when Andrew's smaller, identical twin brother, Christopher, was having a monitor changed out at the hospital or a new tube inserted down his throat. It was at that exact time it would awaken his brother and the other ward of the hospital as if they were linked somehow. Now, I personally thought this story was odd and and worth the attention of on many levels because we're going to take this story a bit further. I could see in flashback photos as I was watching this documentary, photos of the young boy and that the family had shared, just little things that I noticed. Looking at both young boys, you could spot in these photos. For example, in one, they were smiling the same with one side of their mouth slightly turned up more than the other side. Both smiles you know, elevated on the right side. Secondly, in another photo, is it, it, were, it was if they were squinting their eyes, both their left eye almost totally closed. Thirdly, just their entire mannerism. The same hand happened to be in pocket, with the same arm positioned like the identical twin and, and all definitions of the word, just that little gestures, just little things. The boy's mom went on to say that all through their teenage years, her boys worked and helped one another, knowing what the other wanted or needed without even saying or speaking a word. She went to say like they would be sitting together playing in in like the living room floor. The one brother would get up and like go retrieve a a juice and bring to the other brother. And the brother then would say, oh, I was just wanting a juice, you know, just little things like that. Now, this connection was just uncanny for the mom especially. But then on a fateful day when they were about 17 years old, the boys were on a school trip together. Their driver rear-ended a large semi-truck crashing their school bus. Now, I'm not familiar with school buses in England, obviously. But in the story, it mentioned that Christopher uh, was not wearing a seatbelt and was thrown out of the bus over 20 feet. Andrew... In American school buses, you don't wear seatbelts. Yeah, there is no seatbelt. So I, I guess that's a European thing. I, I'm not sure. Well, I, I never understood why we didn't wear them. It so. didn't make a lot of sense, yeah. But Andrew, the slightly larger, we'll say healthier brother, had been wearing his seatbelt, but quickly unlatched it and ran to his identical twin, who he saw laying that 20-some feet away. Now, Andrew said, I could see he was not moving and barely breathing. So I rushed up to him, and I cradled him in my arms and laid his, his head basically in, in his lap. Now, both boys were rushed to the emergency room where Christopher was diagnosed with severe brain trauma and went into a coma almost immediately. The mother never left Christopher's side for several weeks in the hospital, continuing to to try to talk to him and to try to pull him out of this coma. Now, the hospital would not allow anyone else but the mother for the first several days in fear that, you know, too much stimuli and commotion might add to the already weakened state of of the, the boy. However, finally, the day came when his brother, Christopher, was allowed to enter the room. Immediately, the nurses seen extreme high blood pressure and heart rhythm seemed to now relax and drop back to a much safer, lower, healthier level. At one point, Andrew was even asked to step out of the room again, and Christopher's monitors began to alarm out spiking on the blood pressure and heart rhythms until his brother was once again 
you know, invited to come back into the room where they fell back down into a safer level. The mother commented in an interview, smiled and said, they've just always been closely connected. Now, Andrew, during these few days and weeks, developed what can only be described as extreme migraine headaches. Now, this is the healthier, the one in in better condition. Unfortunately, Christopher would never awaken from his coma after brain surgery. Could he have been sharing his brother's experience? Obviously, we couldn't know. It was impossible to know if the other brother was experiencing headaches or not. Right, with him being in a coma. But definitely, to the point... The operation was done on one side of the brain, and it was that same side that the headache occurred. Uh, yeah. Again, we get into this coincidental, maybe. But uh, when Andrew, he just he would not give up. He demanded to be left with his brother, Christopher. And he said where he would attempt to make contact with him without words like they always had. When Andrew was later interviewed, exactly what message was asked that you were trying to tell Christopher, your brother, as he laid there in the bed? And he replied, I basically told my brother, just don't fight it. We were all here for him. We loved him. And if he needed to let go. Now, during these days, Andrew would continue to visit that brother during the day and he would return home to sleep that night. There, his mother and sister said they noticed something once again strange. Andrew, upon falling asleep, would lay on his back sprawled out just like his brother Christopher was positioned in the hospital bed. Now, Andrew had always previously slept on one particular side, more so than the other, and never, ever slept on his back. They later asked him about it, and he goes, I'm not sure why I did that. He goes, I would wake up and hardly be able to move, saying it was just terribly uncomfortable. On another night, in particular, Andrew awoke from a deep sleep, sensing, in his words, His brother was in trouble. He immediately awakened his mom and frantically told her, we've got to get to the hospital now. And at first, the mom's like, you're just having a bad dream. It's all right. But he was insistent. Uh, The mother says, look, I will call the hospital. We'll check. So she calls the brain surgery ward where Christopher was being kept. And the nurse answered and says, thank heavens you reached out to us. We were just getting ready to call you. Christopher has taken a turn for the worse and is in full-blown brain seizures. Andrew, his sister and mother, then raced to the hospital to be next to Christopher at his side. Now, poor Christopher went into a deep vegetative state for four and a half years until finally the family won, by trial, the right to pull the life support from Christopher. So not only having to deal with all of this, but apparently over in Europe, in England, that that was a no-no, and it took a full-blown court trial and everything to be able to pull the life support. Andrew believes Christopher left that night after he had those seizures, the same night he was awakened and insisted something was going on. He said that the headaches stopped immediately, and he just did not feel that connection that he had always had with his brother that entire time. It's still not understood. Was it DNA? Was it a psychology? Was it some type of an unknown bond? Was it the shared soul that I mentioned that some people theorize and a spirit? We may never know. So kind of going along with this shared soul idea, I have the story of identical twins June and Jennifer Gibbons, who were also known as the silent twins. Now, they were the daughters of Caribbean immigrants who had moved from Barbados to the UK in the early 1960s. These two were inseparable from birth. Uh, They spoke using a sped-up version of Bahan Creole, uh, and it made them very difficult to understand by those around them, obviously. Uh, They and their siblings were the only black children in their community, and as a result, they were all ostracized when they went to school. 
this was especially difficult for the twins, and they had to be released early from school to avoid being bullied. So, I mean, they didn't have it very good. Uh, their language became even more unusual because of being ostracized and interacting primarily with each other, and eventually it became virtually impossible for anyone but the twins to understand themselves. Uh, they would eventually cease communicating with anyone at all except for their little sister, Rose. Now, they continued to attend school, but they refused to read or write. They had their own you know, communication, their own way of communicating, mm-hmm. so they didn't, they didn't feel they needed to, I guess. In 1974, their behavior was noticed by a medic visiting the school, and uh, he reported it. So they were forced to see a series of therapists, and none could get them to communicate. I mean, they just would not talk with anyone but themselves. Uh, They were eventually sent to separate boarding schools in an effort to force them to socialize, but when separated, they would become catatonic and withdrawn even more than they already were. Like, they would literally just basically not function when they were separated. So eventually they were reunited, and uh, they would spend the next several years just isolating themselves. Uh, They would engage in elaborate play with dolls, creating plays and stories, kind of a soap opera type, you know, continuing story saga that they would develop. And um, they they would eventually become writers. This kind of helped push them uh, down that path. Uh, though they would see little success as writers, I think they maybe had like one self-published work, and then, you know, that was about it. Uh, in their later teenage years, they began using drugs and alcohol, committed a number of crimes together, including vandalism, petty theft, and arson. You know, I'm sure being isolated the way they were didn't make their lives easy and, right. and, and hard to move on into society. In 1981, they were arrested and eventually admitted to Broadmoor Hospital, which was basically a high-security mental health facility. Um, there, they were sentenced to indefinite detention. Now, they would they would spend 11 years there total, but when they first went in, they, they didn't know they were coming back out at all. Wow, yeah. June blamed their long sentence, of course, on their elective mutinous. In her own words, juvenile delinquents get two years in prison. We got 12 years in hell because we didn't speak. We lost hope, really. I wrote a letter to the queen asking her to let us out, but we were trapped. Now, um, a journalist with the last name Wallace would eventually write a book about the girls. Started out as a Sunday Times newspaper article, and then later a book called The Silent Twins, which was published in 1986. And and she got to know them pretty well after this. And while they were inside, I'll say, we'll use that phrasing, uh, the sisters had an agreement that if one died, the other would be would ha- would have to speak in her normal in a normal way and live a normal life. So they had sort of come to this agreement, like, look, if one of us dies, the other is going to continue to live, and you're going to live a normal life after that. Make the best of it that you possibly can and adapt. So they they began to believe that it was necessary for one of them to die. The longer they were in the hospital, the darker their their moods, the darker their thoughts, and it came to them that that one of them was supposed to die. They, They began to believe that. Wow, this took a dark turn. Yeah. So eventually, after much discussion, it was kind of an unspoken agreement that Jennifer would be the one to make the sacrifice. She decided that she would die so that June could live. Wow. Basically. And so in March of 93, they were transferred from Broadmoor to Caswell. Caswell was more of an open clinic, still a, a mental facility. You know, they were still going to be on the inside, basically. On arrival, they found that Jennifer was unresponsive. She was taken to the hospital, but died soon of um, acute myocarditis, a sudden inflammation of the heart with no evidence of drugs or poison in her system. June revealed later that Jennifer had been acting strangely for a couple days, and June would also later say, I am free at last, liberated, and at last Jennifer has given up her life for me. Um, She described it as as like a tsunami, washing her of her sins and freeing her of her sister. Total liberation. And after that, June would lead a very quiet and normal life for the rest of her days. So it was like they were bonded in a way, 
and they had this own their own way of communicating, which which ostracized them from everyone around them. And it was only possible for one of them to live a regular life if the other no longer was alive. And it's like, then once they made that decision, as you said, there was no drugs or anything found, I assume, in the autopsy. No. It just, okay, I'm going to be the one to sacrifice myself. And she just developed, uh, you know, cases that led to death. Yeah, Yeah, Jennifer decided that she was going to let June lead lead a normal life, and she passed on. Wow. And again, you, you, you know, we talked about the bonding of the soul. I mean, yeah. You know, the fact that one of them existed, apparently, you know, they were a pair. It it, it pulled them both down from the sound of it. That's so, crazy. Yeah, That's it was kind of, I felt it was was, was kind of related. I, I was semi-familiar. I, I, I think I'd picked up the book and had that in my hands, but I was not familiar with all those elusive details with the story. Well, I'm going to share one um, I, I discovered with the astrological signs, uh, Gemini is actually the sign of the twins, which brings us to another story of some identical twins, Leora and Linda. In June of 1961, identical twin sisters, Leora and Linda, were born. Uh, As I mentioned, they they expressed and they kind of embraced the fact that they were born as Geminis. They were identical twins, and that was their sign. I mean, they really embraced this. Now, their mother did not even know she was having twins until she was eight months along. So literally the last month. Uh, Now, that is a little hard to understand, but at at that time frame, you know, 1961, we didn't really do ultrasounds. The doctor simply put a stethoscope and, you know, listened carefully. But twins, I mean, you put on a lot of weight. I mean, there's two people. There's two babies there. Yeah, yeah. The doctor said, well, their hearts were so rhythmic and unisized that they only heard one heartbeat. So that's kind of the way he expressed how that escaped him. Now, their parents are from Canada. Uh, They stated Leora and Linda seem to have their own language. Uh, Now, not your normal goo-goo-gaga, you know, baby talk, but to your point, as you referenced in your story, a a meaningful language that each could audibly understand. This is a twinsy phenomenon and actually has a name called cryptophagia. So this is pretty pretty common. Yeah, it's pretty common. With about 40%, they say, of all twins having some form of this. Now, usually by the time they reach puberty, that kind of ceases and desists usually. However, like with this uh, group of twins, Leora and Linda, they continued this through adulthood with this unspoken or unaudible language, I should say, that no one could understand, not even their parents. Uh, Leora and Linda state that they uh, now present day they uh, no longer use words in their language they are now in their 50s Uh, they both agree they still have that unspoken language just simply by looking and making facial contact they can send messages back and forth know what the other one wants or desires they say it makes perfectly good sense to them and they don't get it why people don't understand that because they said well you spend nine months together sharing a single womb you're literally intertwined with one another for that why would they not be able Able to do this so again it's like you know what's it like to be a twin you know back to that aspect but we don't know anything any different uh, it, it's just common to them we'll lead on into the next story of obsessive twins and this is the story of laura and allison knight also of canada another even I'll say a more odd story of identical twins takes place outside of Ontario, Canada with a relationship that supports obsession in a very strange way Laura and Allison Knight. Now, they are in their mid-30s. They have never spent more than four hours apart 
from one another. When they were taken a few months uh, early at birth, they shared an incubator. This is until nurses and doctors stated they were concerned for the girl's safety, as they would often suck on each other's fingers and toes. So they went to the parents and basically begged for their own safety to split them up. They agreed to give each one of the girls their own incubator, but the two would cry endlessly until they were within visual distance, basically the two incubators almost touching one another. Um, Even today, watching videos of the young ladies, it is a straight-up obsession. They think as one. They pick out each other's clothes simultaneously and get dressed together. Even when sitting down to eat breakfast, everything is carefully weighed and measured to ensure each one is getting the exact amount of cereal, exact amount of milk. Watching the video, the bowl would be placed exactly in the same spot in in relationship to them. The spoon would be on the right-hand side. True obsession kind of stuff. Now, see, you don't have siblings. No. So you can't appreciate the sort of innate desire to want to make sure that you're getting your fair share. (laughs) Of course, I did it with my brother growing up, and my kids do it. I even see it in my dogs. You know, I have two dogs, (laughs) and you can't give something to one dog without the other dog needing to have the same exact thing. may not even be hungry, but I'm getting some of that. Now, Laura states in an interview, she believes she does not, uh, or she does have a unique personality. However, it is that of her sister Allison's, which is kind of a twist. It was so obvious their connection was deemed to the point of being unhealthy at an early age. Doctors suggested then to the parents to try to separate the girls into different rooms as well as different ends of the house. Still in the middle of the night, one of the small girls inevitably would get up in the middle of the night, tiptoe down the hall, and join the other sister in the room for the night. The father uh, was remembered to have scooped up the visiting daughter at various times and returned them back to their own room, and then come morning to only find them back together again as they woke together. Today, they will wear different colors, but still often the exact blouse, the styles and everything, pants, shoes, boots, but maybe different colors. The girls say they felt like freaks. They were ridiculed as freaks growing up, and they firmly wish that they were in one body and that they have taken a lot of ridicule and finger pointing over the years. Motions, thoughts, even memories become all shared. Twins find themselves wondering just whose memory we are sharing because almost every memory was made up with the other twin there. So you imagine seeing that reflection of yourself essentially in an identical twin and they would get together at like family get-togethers and it's like oh i remember when uncle so-and-so had me on his knee and they're like no that was me that wasn't you you know you were over on aunt marge's knee or whatever and they get into arguments like yeah, this. you have to wonder about yeah the mental connection you don't stop i didn't stop yeah. and think about that now you know more on the shared memories and and one story of twins going back to laura and allison knight They share a story of a memory similar to this. At an early age, being in a restaurant with their parents, they were about four or five years old, and they remember reaching their tiny little hands up to grab their father's finger. In doing so, they looked up, and it wasn't their father at all, but the waiter who was serving the table. Ironically, the girls both insist that memory was theirs and not the others. But how could they possibly have that same memory? That's crazy. 
This is pretty uh, common occurrence, actually, among twins, and it is called shared memories, but it is not understood, to say the least. With Laura and Allison Knight, the similarities don't even stop there. As they matured, they both become journalists. They both had two children giving birth within two months of one another, and they say that they had identical hopes as well as dreams their entire life. But they fight the fact of being twins, like I said. They, they felt they were ridiculed. They were labeled as freaks. They really want to be one person. And some of the doctors believe that's why they dress so similar and everything, is they're trying in their own maybe misunderstood, misstrewed way, if we dress the same, we're making ourselves one because that's what we feel we should be. That's weird. Mm. Well, if you're ready for a little bit of crazy here, and I— Probably shouldn't say that. That's not politically correct. <laughs> uh, we just lost four vis- or four viewers, Bill. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I, I have the, the story of identical twins Ursula and Sabina Erickson, uh, born November 3rd, 1967 in Sweden. Um, they had no apparent mental health issues in their youth and no criminal convictions. And by the year 2000, Ursula was living in the U.S. while Sabina was living in Ireland. Now, Ursula visited Sabina on Friday, May 16th, 2008. Not all that long ago. Yeah, this is the beginning of of a very tragic and and, uh, at times unsettling story here. Ooh, buckle up, listeners. So the twins secretly departed Sabina's home and headed for Liverpool, England. They arrived in Liverpool at 8.30 on Saturday, and they went to the St. Anne Street Police Station to report concerns over the safety of Sabina's children. That that in itself is already a little bit weird. Yeah, yeah. By 11.30 a.m. that morning, the twins had boarded a bus to head to London. And authorities state that the twins suddenly got off the bus at a service station claiming to be ill. That's what they claim. The bus driver claims he left them at the station at about 1 after he became suspicious of their erratic behavior. He noticed that they would cling to their bags and refuse to let any anyone look in them. Um, he notified the manager of the station, and then the station manager notified the police. But the officers, uh, officers showed up to check on them and, and said they were harmless, and they left. Now, as recorded on the security camera footage, which... English roads are kind of set up a little different than ours, and obviously traffic flow and all that. The twins left the station on foot and began to walk down the center of the road. That doesn't sound safe. Yeah. They attempted to cross, causing chaos in the traffic and receiving minor injuries at that point. Their older brother would later claim that they they said they were fleeing from maniacs that were pursuing them. Uh, Now, police would arrive on the scene, accompanied by a small television crew, that just so happened to be filming motorway cops, which is very similar to the US US TV show Cops. So, you know, they just happened to have a camera crew. I was like, when why they would they up. have a TV crew? Okay, yeah. okay that explains so, that. So while assessing the situation, trying to figure out what was going on, trying to get the twins corralled is probably the best term I could use, <laughs> Ursula managed to get free and ran into the side of an oncoming truck. Oh. Sabina herself quickly followed and was hit head-on by a passenger car at high speed. Oh. She somersaulted over the hood in the windshield before landing in the next lane over. Jiminy Christmas. Both survived. Ursula was immobilized with crushed legs, and Sabina was knocked unconscious for almost 15 minutes. Uh, they were, were treated, um, but Ursula was savagely resisted treatment with scratching and biting. She didn't want anything to do with this. She yelled at the police that were restraining her, I recognize you, and I know you're not real. And Sabina, at this point, you know, she had regained her consciousness and started yelling, they're going to steal your organs. Oh, my gosh. So, it's like psychotic break time. Yeah. So once Sabina regains consciousness and, and starts screaming, right, she gets up. She starts screaming for help. She punches an officer in the face and then runs into traffic again on the other side. They're in the median doing all this. Wow. She runs into traffic on the other side. 
Uh, emergency workers catch her, restrain her, they carry her to an ambulance, and they're both taken to the hospital. So that, that situation is That's the worst game of Frogger <laughs> ever. Uh, Sabina would be, would eventually calm down, be treated for her injuries and released about five hours later on May 19th, 2008, she was released from court without psychiatric evaluation, pled guilty to charges of trespassing on the motorway and hitting an officer. And she was sentenced to one day in custody, which was deemed to have already been served. Now, after leaving court, Sabina began to wander the streets of Stoke on Trent, where she was at trying to find her sister. At about 7 p.m. local, two, two local men spotted her while one of them was walking their dog. Uh, one of the men, 54-year-old Glenn Hollinshead, he was self-employed welder, qualified paramedic, and a former RAF airman. So he's, he, he's a guy who can take care of himself. Right. Uh, the other is um, his friend Peter Malloy. Now, she, she seemed friendly, and she started petting the dog while they were having a conversation and, and kind of nervously asked if, if they could give her directions to a nearby hotel or a bed and breakfast, something. Some place to stay. Yeah, a place to stay. Uh, Holland said felt sorry for her and so offered to take her back to his house. They weren't far from home. You know, he's walking his dog. He's not that far. So he takes her back to his house. Now, once he gets her to his house, she starts to exhibit some really strange behavior. She's like constantly getting up to look out the window, paranoid, look like she's being followed. Uh, she would offer them cigarettes. And then as soon as they took the cigarettes, she'd snatch them back before they could be lit, claiming that they were poisoned. <laughs> so, you know, they're her cigarettes, right? Right. Now, Malloy would eventually leave for the evening, you know, and he left Sabina there with Holland's head. So the next day around noon, Holland's head calls his brother and he's asking his brother about local hospitals, trying to help Sabina locate Ursula. You know, they want to know where sister. her sister's at. At about 740, Holland's head steps out his back door to ask the neighbor for tea bags. He steps back inside and then comes out just a minute later saying, you know, he, she stabbed me. She's, you know, the neighbor's still out there and he's clearly bleeding. He collapses and dies very, very quickly from his wounds. Sabina had stabbed him five times with a butcher knife in the time it took him to walk back in the door. Goodness gracious. So the neighbor calls for help as Sabina flees the scene. And uh, she left with a hammer and was caught on camera striking herself in the head with this hammer. What the heck? I, I guess they have a lot more like closed circuit cameras in, in the UK there. So a concerned passing motorist pulls over and tries to take the hammer from, from her. Uh, she strikes him with a piece of roof tile she had in her pocket. And, and with the authorities in pursuit, she jumps from a 40-foot high bridge onto another roadway. Oh, She breaks gosh. both of her ankles and fractures her skull in the process. And she's taken to the hospital. Uh, Sabina is released from the hospital on September 11th, 2008. She's taken into custody and charged with murder the same day she's released. Ursula gets released later in September as well, and she goes back to Sweden and then eventually moves to the U.S. Sabina would plead guilty at trial, but never offered any explanation for her actions. Uh, she was determined to be insane at the time of the crime, but sane enough to stand trial. Uh, defense claimed that she was a secondary sufferer of what they call folly adieu, which is shared psychosis. They think that her sister was sick, whatever mental disorder, whatever, whatever, Whatever was going on, whatever insanity they were suffering on her sisters, and be, yeah, and possibly because identical twins. Wow! But she was was influenced by the presence of her twin sister. Being around her sister triggered the 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 insanity Psychotic in her break kind of thing. Uh, but Sabina would be sentenced to five years in prison and was eligible for release in 2011. Wow, you weren't kidding. That that's a dark story there. Bill. Yeah, that one takes some turns. Wow. I'm not sure I can follow that one up. I remember when that one was in the news. I remember hearing about that when it happened, and it was 
I mean, the story itself is bad enough, but then the fact for them to be twins just makes that story so much stranger. Creepier, creepier. Wow. Well, I'm going to share a little bit of um, a, a little toner version than that, but a lack of identity. And again, this is something that, I, to me, I just didn't think about it. And I, I think you, you might agree after hearing this. For many twins, the shared identity is one of the most aggravating of issues that they deal with, especially about the time of puberty. You think about everything everybody's going through when you hit that puberty, there's weird things that happen where they're trying to become themselves, but everything is shared. All through life, commonly twins received the exact same birthday and Christmas package, stands to reason. And if one opened their package a moment before you would, well, you pretty well already knew what was in your package sitting on your lap. You know, in the teenage years, that has to be more and more difficult. You know, one set of girl twins share a story from the dreaded junior high dance. The girls were both shy, identical twins we're talking about. And they had, uh, so they found themselves kind of leaning against the wall, just kind of watching their friends dancing and that awkward stage in life right there at puberty. And you know, scared to death in a mix of hope and praying that someone might ask them to dance, but petrified of what they would do if somebody did ask them to actually dance. Uh, you know, like most of us at that time frame, being honest, looking back, the girls found themselves, you know, as always, just kind of looking at each other. But then there was this one pimple-faced, less-than-popular boy that walked across the room and approached them. They said their hearts began to kind of pace in, and they thought, you know, maybe one of us will, will get asked to dance. Now, the little boy in puberty preteen fashion, he walks up and he goes, hey, do one of you want to dance? <laughs> Just one of you. Not both, because I don't care which one, you're both the same. Oh, geez. So the girls were just both crushed. Uh, well, and imagine, I mean. It, oh, my gosh. I mean. He's bad enough and, and dealing with all the body issues and, and all that. <laughs> And then to have someone be like, I'll dance with one of you. It really doesn't matter. You're, you're the same. You're the same, so I don't care. Just one of you, though. I don't want both of you. That's kind of <laughs> creepy. But, you know, to one point, one even went the very next day and, as you mentioned in one of your stories, got their hair cut off because they both had had long hair. Totally changed the way they would look, just trying to become somewhat of an individual. And, again, I I didn't really stop and think about this until I started doing research for this, but that has to be I mean, that's a curse. I, I don't know how else to put that. That would be a curse. It, it's one of those things I thought about, like, you know, if, if we'd had twins, like, how do you differentiate identical twins? Obviously, they're going to be identical. Like, as a parent, you kind of would have to, you know, would you happen? don't want to admit it, but you don't want to, yeah. you know, like, you got to mark the baby. In yeah, this, the baby, exactly. Little, little marker on the foot or something. You know, you're, you're hollering to your wife, hey, little, uh. I think it's Amanda's yeah. not acting right. right. You, you know, you put a or bracelet on one baby so you can differentiate. I and how embarrassing, but it's true. And as a parent, I think I would encourage them to be different people. You know what I mean? I the birthday thing, like, okay, my daughter is is her birthday is the you know very very close to Christmas, and we intentionally celebrate her birthday a little early. Make a point to separate so that it separates it from Christmas. I mean, and that's you know that's just that. I mean, and, and a lot of family. They'll send a Christmas card and it's, you know, birthday, Christmas, blah, blah, blah. But I would, I would assume kind of similar with twins. I would think like even to the point where you might celebrate birthdays like a week apart or something. I don't, you I don't know. You were born 20 seconds before your, you know, your brother or your yeah. sister. So that's enough difference. I would think know. as a parent, you'd want to differentiate. Now that's just me, but. Have you heard about the disappearing twin in the ultrasound? I can't okay. say that I have. This is, this is a little grimacing. 
It's called fetal absorption. I, I have heard of. Okay, yeah, I've heard of, of that. Okay. Early, early on in the pregnancy, an ultrasound clearly shows you're having twins. Um, however, a month later, one twin just vanishes. Well, one was weaker, is often the case, and we had talked about. But in this case, so weakened, it just doesn't survive. So in essence, in an eerie, bizarre turn of nightmarish tales, the one twin actually essentially eats or absorbs yeah, I was gonna say, it's, the remains of the other. Eat wouldn't be the right way to yeah, phrase yeah. it. But, you, but you, yeah, you absorb. Erasing from history before it was even born. You know, so how many times has that occurred? And especially, I mean, just go back to the 50s, the 40s. I mean, we wouldn't have understood any of that. Heck, we talked about the one story where the gal was eight months pregnant, didn't even realize she was having twins, yeah. and that was in 1961. You know, we had talked a little bit about twins separated at birth, and it goes without saying that, you know, twins are sometimes put up for adoption, like in your story. I did find a story about twins separated at birth. I didn't dig too much into it. Uh, identical twins, one was raised by a Jewish family, the other by a Nazi family during World War II. Era. Whoa, there's a yin to the yang. That's, yeah, that's... <laughs> and apparently they did get to meet each other post-war, and... and and I, I didn't, mm-hmm. I, I didn't do research. I didn't read much into them because I wasn't doing, you know, I wasn't going to, I didn't talk about them, but. Wow. You don't get much different than that. You got that right. However, you know, the uncanny tales and similarities of twins who never grew up together are mind boggling. Uh, you know, in many documented cases, twins reunited sometimes 20, 30, even 60 years after birth to, to the point of your story, find themselves very similar, you know, not only in appearance, hairstyles, dress, you know, what they have done for a living. One account tells of two twin sisters reunited in their 30s who never knew the other existed. Uh, they had uh, studied movies in theater together or, or separately, but in growing up, both were actually editors of their high school newspapers. One even had, uh, or they also had the same political and religious views, shared the same favorite foods and even colors. You know, there's See just that, more than coincidence. I was going to say, you would think things like that would not be dictated by genetics, but it can't be, it can't just be happenstance. It, yeah, it can't be. Mere image twins. Uh, when identical twins are just that, there's a phenomenon where sometimes they are mirrored images of one another. For example, If one twin is right-handed, the other one might be left-handed. One might have a unique birthmark on their right leg, where the other twin has that identical same birthmark, but on the left leg. Uh, This can go a step further if an illness occurs, which has been documented, like a tumor growing, for example, on the right side. The other twin, maybe in different states, has a tumor that starts growing on the opposite left-hand side. Crazy, crazy stuff. And you might ask, are twins multiplying? Actually, yes. Since 1980, the rate of twin births have increased 76%. Of course, twins are multiplying. It's times two, Eric. (laughs) It's one baby times two. That's a dad joke if ever I heard one. (laughs) In just a few decades before, 76% increase, all-time high in 2014, as noted. Where's the twinvasion coming from? Number one, women are waiting longer to have children. Number two, women who are 30 and older hyperovulate more than mothers in their 20s. Therefore, that increases the multiple zigio situation. Well, in um, artificial insemination and in the likes of, you know, in vitro uh, are more likely. That's, well, 
actually number three. Yeah, what if it mo- doesn't take? So we're yeah. gonna we're gonna just in case, just in case, and sometimes so you end up with like Octomom and yeah. <laughs> hey, you're having twins times twins. Well, in closing, um, I will say, and I briefly touched upon this. I was privileged to know two sets of twins while while growing up. One all the way through elementary through high school. Uh, that was a, a shout out to Frank and Tom Hales, uh, military family twins from Hawaii. I always thought that was really cool to have some friends that, that had come from Hawaii uh, that I got to know very well in elementary school. And then uh, a second set of twins, uh, a Pammy and Tammy Minkler, who lived just up the road from me. And actually, one of them ended up working for me at Emerson for, for a little while. Off topic, strangely. I was watching a trailer for a movie about twins, and they were identical. And and there's a, a scene where they meet like some new people and they introduce themselves and they had different names like Sabina and Ursula let's say I don't remember what the names were but one of the young ladies goes really your names don't match did or rhyme <laughs> your names don't rhyme were your parents even trying <laughs> well I can attest Frank and Tom who I I did know much better would often mess with their teachers in in school you know they would come to school dressed alike. Uh, or if they had a different shirt, they might even swap shirts and swap classes. I apologize, guys, if I'm if I'm calling you <laughs> out here on the carpet, but uh, it's all in good fun for the podcast. Um, I can either n- uh, confirm nor deny uh, what all that they had done in school <laughs> in- involving uh, tests, possibly. And uh, you'd, I'll, you'd I'll have ju- to. I'll just say, you know, it's easier to get a better grade the second time you take the test. <laughs> If I had a twin, I absolutely would have done those kinds of things. We hope that you have enjoyed this uh, twins episode here on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening. At about 7.40, Hollinshead steps out the bass. uh, The bass. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family Shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family. For allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it, as, hopefully, as much as we do. Thank you very much.